0: Welcome to the Grace City Church podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. Um, my name is Will Krause, and I'm one of our non-staff elders here at Grace City Church, and I'm excited to get to lead from the teaching side of things. The first service revealed to me that I needed <coughs> a cup of water in order to make it through. So don't mind me. Um, we uh, update on our elders. As you know, Will Plunk is out of uh, Charleston right now. He's up in D.C. taking some seminary classes. And I checked in with him uh, earlier this week. He's doing well, enjoying uh, the break from what is, what is his usual rhythms here. And uh, Mally got a chance to go up and visit him as well. And so that was really good. Um, And uh, as you heard our announcement this morning, uh, Richard and Donna Brown are getting their families ready for uh, a big adventure to Scotland. And so I just want to double down on what Jason said and invite you to participate in this night with us as we think about Scotland uh, and our missional opportunities that we have there. Richard and Donna, of course, are kind of the tip of the spear for our church as God has put uh, a vision in their hearts for that. This is going to be a night where you get to learn more about what they're doing and you get an invitation to be a part of it. Um, of course, to to pray uh, for them, to be in communication with them and encouraging them uh, to financially participate in their ministry. Um, There's some really good work that they're doing where where dollars can really speed up uh, the discipleship opportunities there. Uh, And also maybe for some of you to go, just wanted to say that, um, to go and visit and go be a part of what they're doing uh, in Scotland. Maybe, hopefully it's not for the whole two years that they're going because we're already sad they're leaving for that long, but we're excited about what God is doing and we think this night would be really important, so we hope that you'll mark your calendars and come to that. Like Jason said, our office does have a certain capacity, so we do need you to sign up and let us know you're coming, um, so if you'll do that on the website, that would be fantastic. Before we jump into our psalm this morning, uh, I do want to revisit uh, just the heaviness of this week. Um, this has been a emotional week for many, or really for all, it um, doesn't matter where you fall. Uh, in this conversation. It has been uh, an emotional week on all different sides of the scale. Uh, As you know, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, and as a church, um, these are conversations we want to enter into. Uh, And I'll tell you that I don't know exactly how to do this perfectly or what the next steps look like for us as a church, but I know some things that are true, and I want to share those with you this morning. Some things that are true is we do celebrate that because of this, um, lives lives will be saved, um, and we know that in Psalm 139 uh, that, that God uh, speaks to us that He has created us in our inmost being. It is in His image that we've been knit together. That that's life in the womb, and we celebrate the fact that millions of lives might be saved uh, because of this. But we also recognize God wants so much more from us than just to fight uh, for saving life in the womb. That there are lives outside the womb, the women that are carrying these children that need care desperately. And they need it now more than they've ever needed it before. And so I would say that theres a there's been a gap, even the church has not handled ab- uh, the topic of abortion fully, right? We've let the, the world s- kind of split us into two camps almost, where we are either uh, pro-life or pro-choice, where we are either fighting for the child or fighting for the mother that's carrying the child. We are let political lines put us into camps here, but the fullness of what God has called us to. If we are righteous, if Jesus has made us righteous, if we are his followers, we don't get to choose those camps. That's what I want our people to hear. We don't get to choose which camp we're fighting for. We, we, the, the answer is both. It's not an either or, it's an and. And so there's work for us to do, and I don't know exactly what that work looks like. I know there's ministries in Charleston that are doing good work to help Uh, mothers that are in crisis, um, uh, organizations like DAS that we've had many of our members go and serve at to help support their work, but I would imagine even even their efforts, they're going to be overwhelmed, and and, and we need to be thinking about how do we care, how do we see those in crisis and love them well uh, through this. This is um, not where the conversation stops. um, It's where, honestly, I hope more attention is given now from all parties to to women who need care, um, who are in desperate situations. And so I want to pray for that for us um, and ask God that he would just guide us as a church and guide us as people. So pray with me. Lord, we we don't always know what's going on. (laughs) We often don't know what's going on, but you do. You made all of us. You're the author of life. You're a creator. There's nothing unknown to you. There's nothing about our future that's unknown. There's nothing about our circumstances that is unknown to you. You see all. And while that's kind of an invasive thought, I pray that that would be a comforting thing to the people in the sound of my voice. That you know where our convictions, where our concerns are, God. And I pray even as we open up Psalm 24 this morning and read it, we would know that you're fully responsible, that you are the owner of these lives, of this world, of us as a people. But I just ask that you would guide our steps in how to live it out. I pray for the way that we even rejoice in the fact that lives might be saved from this uh, decision, that we would be considerate to those who are still suffering, who this this actually brings confusion for them, where this, this now makes the world even darker and scarier for them. God, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see those women who are in crisis, who need help, where the church is underspoken in caring for the mother. God, I pray that you would... Move us to to take steps and to take action. Lord, we love you. We we trust in you. We want to bring things to you, God. I pray that we would be a people that pray about this often. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is timeless, that we can take of it today and apply it to our lives. I pray that as we open Psalm 24, would you just reshape who you are in a firm way for us, that it would help us make sense of some of the complicated things in our life that we're living in. We love you, God. We trust you. Let's hear your name we pray. Amen. Okay, Psalm 24. Uh, Ten verses that we're going to get into. And Psalm 24 is, uh, in in many ways, a theology of worship uh, for us. It's going to talk about who is God, who are his people, and what do his people do. Who is God? Who are his people? What do his people do? Um, I've heard it said that the quality of one's life could be determined by the quality of questions you ask. And I don't think that's an absolute statement or an absolute truth, but it is interesting to think about. That, like, when you when you ask a question, it leads to an answer. An answer generates uh, emotions and drives behavior. Behavior determines results. So in some ways, you could trace it back to, am I asking good questions in life? What, c- what are the... Ha- What's the quality of questions that I'm asking? My, my agenda today is to open these 10 verses up, observe the timeless biblical truths in Psalm 24 about God and about us, and to help us ask good questions. That's my hope, to help us ask good questions in light of those truths. So verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Everything belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord. This is a timeless truth. It doesn't matter when you read it. It doesn't matter if you read this thousands of years ago, today at Great City Church, or thousands from years from now, this is the timeless truth that everything belongs to the Lord. What does everything mean? Everything. The animals, the insects, vegetation, The mountains, the seas, the people, our resources, our children, everything belongs to the Lord, the world, and all who live in it. He is, you could say, the owner. He is the the owner of all that we see. Here's our first good question we should ask. Why does it matter who the owner is? You don't need to say it. Just think about it. Why does it matter to me who the owner is? Maybe you think about a business, you think about a home. Why why does it matter who the owner is? I'll give you two thoughts. One, because that's where ultimate authority rests. That's where ultimate authority rests, is with who owns it. That's also where ultimate responsibility exists. Both authority and responsibility rest solely with the owner. When we think about authority, we think about who's, who's in charge, whose word matters the most. When they say this is what we're doing, this is what's happening, this is what we're doing. You think about a house, uh, the owner owns a house, maybe some tenants live in it and are paying rent. It don't really matter what the contract says. I mean, the contract probably came from the owner, but the owner's word is, what, is what's true. If they decide to sell the house, the house gets sold. If they decide to raise the rent, the house, the rent gets raised. That's a, that's a bad topic right now. Um, the owner has full autonomy is the idea. They also have full responsibility. They have the, the position and the resources to take action, to take responsibility. Back to our house illustration, if, it's, if there's termites in the wall, who's fixing that? The owner. Th- they should be. The owner is, is who where responsibility ultimately rests. And this text says... That God, verse 1, is the owner of all things, which means that he is authoritative over all things, and he is responsible for those things. And here's an interesting observation about humanity, and I can speak on humanity's behalf because I'm a part of humanity. We're comfortable with God being responsible but not an authority of the earth. We're okay with him coming to him. God, in your infinite power and wisdom, and and, I mean, have you ever thought this thought like, God, you're God. We just changed this? Will you just fix these circumstances? Will you just pull me out of uh, this this life that I'm in? God, take responsibility. Fix what's broken. Yet, we don't like to surrender to our autonomy to Him. We don't like to actually submit to His authority over our lives. You know, that's how we got into sin in the first place. That's how we, that's how the things that, when you think of sin, you probably think of something. Something in, that's personal to you that is your struggle. You know that the That that thing, it has its roots in autonomy. In Genesis, Adam and Eve are are tempted by the evil one, the serpent. And they're looking at this tree that God said, don't eat from that tree. And Satan lies to them, telling them, if you just eat of this, it's not just that it looked good and tasty. It was probably organic. It was that they believed that by eating that, I I will know how... To judge good and evil for myself. I will, I will be able to be my own God, essentially. I won't have to submit to God. I'll be able to do that myself. I'll be able to be my own God. It is out of an appetite for autonomy that sin was even born into this world for us and became our problem. You think you have a lust problem. You think you have an anger problem. You think you have an envy problem. You think you have a worry problem. You have an autonomy problem. Because in all of those scenarios, in many ways, those words are just the, the symptoms, if you will. The root of it really comes back to either you've made yourself in charge, determining what is right and wrong in your own eyes, or you've made yourself ultimately responsible. That you're the one that's going to be able to get everything through, to fix everything. And in reality, we are not the owner. God is. So here's a question for us. Where in my life... Am I clinging on to autonomy and control, refusing to give it to God? Verse 1 says God's the owner, which means he's ultimately responsible, ultimately in charge. It means his words what matters most. It means that what he says reigns over all. But I don't know about you, but you might, you might disagree with that. Or you might say, that sounds good, but my life isn't really going to change. Verse 2 tells you why you should change it, why you should believe it. It says it right there on the screen. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Why is he the owner of all? Because he created it all. We would, not, we would not be here without him. He created us. So to, to disagree with the autonomy that he has over our lives, would really to disagree that he created you. Because I don't think that you disagree that if you create something that you are autonomous over it, right? I am going to use Richard Brown for an example. He's a creator of pens. He doesn't have time to make you one, so don't ask him. Uh, he's heading to Scotland soon. Um, I've gotten to see behind the scenes of this pen operation. It's just a fun hobby of his, a way that he blesses people. And I'm going to butcher it. I'm so sorry about how, the, how beautiful the process is. But he'll go and he'll take this piece of wood. He's talked about, oh, I got this out of my backyard. And he'll take this piece of wood and he'll... He'll mold it, that's probably not even the right word, but he'll like carve it and get it down. There's some cool machine that he bought that like makes it really small, and he crafts it. And each pen that he's made, I've seen a couple of them, they all look different. He chooses the color ink that it's gonna have. He chooses if it's gonna be fine uh, point or if it's gonna be that kind that bleeds everywhere. I'm, I'm really team fine point. Um, and, uh, it, but as the creator of that pen, would we not agree, he, he determines that creation's purpose. He decides who he's going to give it to, what it's going to look like, where it's going to be. A creator doesn't just create. They give purpose to their creation. The creation, you could say, in the reverse, submits to their creator. So since God created us, we and everything in this world belong to him. We look to him for our purpose. Here is, um, here's the primary application from verse 1 and 2 that you really can't escape uh, when you read it. If God is the owner... We are stewards of all we have. So if God is the owner, that means that we're not. So what are we? We're stewards. We're managers. We've been entrusted with things that we are stewarding. The idea of stewardship, what, what do we mean by that? It means that we're, we've been given things like gifts. You've been given things like breath and your health and resources and, f- and social networks and children and money, all these things we are stewards of. They're not actually ours. And so the question becomes, how do you steward them? How do you, how, what does the Bible say about how we steward these things? I want to give you, and i got a slide for it, um, just a theology around stewardship that I think is helpful. We are stewards, Psalm 24.1 that shrewdly invest oh, I whistled that shrewdly invest in the kingdom of God because of the gospel. We are stewards that shrewdly invest in the kingdom of God because of the gospel. Psalm 24:1 of course, is where we start there with the idea that we're stewards. We're not the owners of it. We've been entrusted. Luke 16, I love Luke 16. it's not what our sermons on today. I'm going to just briefly summarize it for you. It's a parable. Uh, that Jesus tells about a manager, and he calls him a shrewd manager, and and the way that the parable goes is there's a wealthy landowner uh, who uh, has this manager working for him, and essentially he brings the manager in and he says, "Hey, I'm gonna fire you. You got you got two weeks. Essentially, I don't know if that would, that's that's exactly how it went down, but you've got some time before I fire you. Get your affairs in order," is what it says at the beginning of Luke 16, and so this manager goes out and he decides to rip off his boss. Not, not really out of anger and frustration, but more to protect himself. So he goes to everybody that owes his boss money, and he says, how much do you owe him? And let's just for our sake say a million dollars. <laughs> he says, scratch that invoice, make it 500,000. He goes to somebody else, how much do you owe him? He says, I owe him two million dollars. Make that one million. He is making friends for himself so that when he's fired, and he's also about to be homeless, because a lot, lot of times you would work Live with the, uh, your, the owner or the person that you work for. When he's fired and homeless, he's going to have friends that he can go and be with, right? That's, that's the parable. And it says that the, the wealthy man who just got really ripped off by his manager had to commend him for being so shrewd. Not the response we think he's going to say. It's almost like he applauded him, like bravo, touche, well done. And Jesus says in the end of Luke 16, I want my people to be shrewd in how they use their earthly resources to make friends for the kingdom of God. I love the principle of shrewdness. Shrewdness is not just, here's what my income is, I got to give this percentage back to the church. That's not shrewd. Shrewd is thinking about what are all the things that God has entrusted with me? What has he given to me to to manage? And I'm going to give an account for that one day. So am I doing it? Am I doing it well? Am I applying? When you think of shrewd, think of I'm applying my wit, my, my creativity, um, the opportunities in my life to leverage these resources for the end goal of the kingdom of God, not for myself. That's where we often get it backwards. You see, we're pretty shrewd people. We're pretty shrewd in getting what we want. The question is, is our, is our investment in, in it for ourselves or is it in it for the kingdom of God? One thing before we leave shrewd that you really can't, that has to be part of it is you got to talk to the owner you got to actually pray to God and ask him, God, how, how am I doing here? What What is, is this strategy that I'm thinking about? And some of us need to actually go home and develop a strategy for this. But, like, is this something that honors you? Speak into it, God. you got to talk to the owner, if you're a manager, about how you are stewarding what he has given you. When's the last time you talked to the owner about your stewardship strategy? But Matthew 6, of course, tells us where we are shrewdly investing. We are investing in the kingdom of God, God, a place where moth and, uh, and, and vermin won't destroy, a place where thieves won't break in and steal, a place where we can make a good investment. I've had people trying to steal my money this week. We've been trying to sell things online, Facebook Marketplace. Very shady, just so you know that. If you work for Zella, Dr. Zella is a great organization, but people are, don't, never mind. Uh, It's, uh, there there are people out there trying to steal from you. That's what I'll say. And I was thinking about this even in light of this text because I think for us, if we have not been, if this isn't a category for us, if this isn't something you're spending your, your, your time on a weekly, monthly basis thinking about, how am I investing in the kingdom of God specifically? Because again, it's easy just to go out and be shrewd for yourselves, but am I being shrewd for the kingdom of God? if that's not something that's happening in your life right now, I would say it's because you don't believe this verse. And it's actually helpful just to admit that. That I don't believe, because what this verse is saying is that it's a bad investment to invest it here in the earth. Where, where thieves steal, where uh, moth and, and rust destroy, this is a bad investment. If I told you, let's get into two lines. On this line, if you want to make a good investment with your resources, come over here. And on this line, if you want to make a bad investment with resources, right? Like, that's comical. Nobody, nobody intentionally makes a bad investment. Nobody says, I want to lose money. I just got too much. I just, like to get, I just like for it to be wasted. We want to make good investments. So if you read God's Word, and it's been read to you this morning, that He's saying a good investment for it, that's not going to fail is in the kingdom of God and we don't do it, it's because we don't really believe it. And it's actually a good place to start to just talk to God and say, God, I don't believe this. Help me believe it. Help me see the opportunities that I have to invest in your kingdom. And then, of course, we do all of this because of what has been done for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9. Jason talked about it earlier when we talk about giving, that Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I'm not telling you this to, to obligate you to give, I'll say it in my own way. Pastor Kraus up here is not telling you to, out of obligation that you need to go back there and give. But instead, what does it say? I want to test the sincerity of your love for Christ. I want to see if the way that you give and the way that you steward your resources makes sense for what's been done for you. That though he was rich, he made himself poor. So that we might become rich. We do this because of the gospel But it starts with recognizing, back to our text in Psalm 24, we are a steward. He is the owner. So how how are you stewarding? It's a good question. Another good question is in verse 3 of our text this morning. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? This is a good question. In light of God being the owner, in light of him being autonomous, him being ultimately responsible, Who has the right to come to him? Who has the right to be his people, to be in fellowship with him, to be in his presence, to have relationship with this all-powerful owner and creator? Verse 4 gives us that answer. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. So to make the cut, to get into to, to, to fellowship with God, to ascend the, uh, the mountain of the Lord, to be in his presence, i got to do three things, it says. My hands must be clean, my heart must be pure, and I must not trust in idols or false gods. Uh. That is a a list of qualifications right there. My hands must be clean. My heart must be pure. I must not trust in false gods. What's David talking about? He's talking about pure, authentic worship. I've heard a pastor define worship as this, the act of assigning ultimate value that engages your entire being. The act of assigning ultimate value value saying this thing is most important it is most valuable in life and engaging with that with your entire being meaning your mind your will your emotion your actions worship is not just the portion of our service that we sing it's how we live our life David says it's it's worship in its purest form that God accepts my hands must be clean meaning my actions The things that I actually do that others can see. They need to be clean of the filth of sin. Another question What if if I don't have clean hands? What if I've sinned against my brother this week? What if I have lied to my sister? What if I have betrayed the trust of my friend or my spouse? What if my hands aren't clean? That's a good question. It says my heart must be pure. Not just what people can see. It's got to be legitimate in the heart. And in our context and culture, we're pretty good at making it look like we got clean hands. But the heart convicts, doesn't it? Is my heart pure? Does it, are the, are the motives, the desires of my heart, do they come from a pure place? Where does a pure heart come from? It's a good question. Where does a pure heart come from? Thirdly, my faith must be in God alone, not placed on idols or false gods. For us, I think you can read that even knowing we're in the Old Testament and think like, all right, idols, these things made of wood or gold that people used to bow down and worship to, or false gods, like The God of rain or the God of infertility or all these different, the God of war. And that may not feel like a a struggle or relevant to you. Don't be deceived. These gods, these false idols are all around us. They are all around us. And our culture and our world worships them all the time. And oftentimes so do we. Does the idol of money rule in your life? Is your stability in this world, the way you evaluate, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm going to be provided for, is that based on what's in your account and how many resources you have? You might be worshiping the idol of money. Does the idol of comfort dictate your hands and the the choices that you make? Do your actions run through a, a filter of, would this make things easier for me? Would I just feel more comfortable if this were to happen? Does the idol of of pleasure or sex preoccupy your thoughts and your motives? Does it consume your dreams and desires? There are idols of worship all around us. God says that those who worship me with everything are those who ascend the mountain of the Lord that can be in his presence. There's so much tension in this, and I feel it from you. Here's the, here's the truth, and it ends up being good news. None of us qualify for this. None of us, on our own, earn the right to be in relationship with God. None of us have clean hands, pure hearts, or place our faith fully and only on God. It that That only comes if we have a substitute. That only comes through Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just let the Word of God preach at you for a second and ramble off some verses because the truth about the gospel is that all people fall short. Romans 3, 9 through 14. All people are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's Romans 3. And that sin that is described there for us, it cuts us off from fellowship with God. That's what it earns us. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. If if God could be described as life, that means that death essentially is separation from him. It's living a life without God. But God, Ephesians 2, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. That even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. Where does it say he sat us with him? In the heavenly realms, in his presence, in fellowship with him. For we are God's handiwork, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Why? Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. None of us meet these qualifications on our own. There is nothing that we can boast in of ourselves. It is only because God sent someone to meet those qualifications for us, to make us into a new creation, so that we could actually have a pure heart, have clean hands, and put our faith in Him. So if we've learned who is God, He's the owner of all things. We've learned who are his people. They're those who, through Jesus, are cleansed and are pure. Well, what do his people do? That's what verse 7 tells us through 10. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Did you notice the repetition? Repetition communicates emphasis. Like, I have to tell my two-year-old son six times for him to know what I'm trying to tell him to do. Repetition is an important thing for us to grasp when we're reading God's word. When it's repeated, we have to pay attention to it. What is David emphasizing? What do his people do? They lift up the gates so that the king of glory can come in. They lift up the gates so that the king of glory can come in. Commentators talk about Psalm 24 as a a passage that would have been read in the temples of worship on the first day of the week, on Sundays. And, and because of that, there's several connections to that truth, that we as his people, we lift up the gates so that the Son of Glory can come in, that we can think about. One might have been a more literal uh, connection for them. The Ark of the Covenant is what this could be referring to. The Ark of the Covenant, um, for some of you I say that and you immediately think of Indiana Jones, um, which was a good film. Uh, but the Ark was a physical display of the presence of God. It was a big deal, and uh, it was uh, captured in war, but later returned to uh, Jerusalem and 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 literally the r- open the gates uh, that it talks about here uh, lift up your heads so the king of glory can come in would have literally been referring to open the temple doors so as the ark was on its way back into God's people and in his house. It also would be referring to as it was read thousands of years later, Jesus ascending into heaven. I mean, can you imagine that? The king of glory making it back to his kingdom after an assignment on this earth to come and rescue us. Mighty and victorious in battle. Open the gates of heaven. Let the king of glory, he's home. Let him come in. What a beautiful image that is. One we'll hope, One will get to experience. But certainly the third application of this is most imperative for us as a people. Lift up the gates so that the King of Glory can come in. Would be a reference to us letting the gates of our hearts open, so that God can come in. I um, when I think about gates, they're they're naturally meant to keep things out or to allow things to come in. And the beautiful thing about this text is, it says that when you lift it up. When you allow God, the King of Glory, to come to to, to, to when, when the gates of your heart have been opened, He comes in. Like He, it's not even a question for Him. He comes in. He wants to fellowship with His people. He doesn't stand at the 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 gate of your heart as it opens and say, "You know what? They're a little too dirty. Hands are too unclean. Heart too impure." That's not what God does. He he comes in, in all of his glory. James 4.8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Revelation 3.20, so beautiful. It says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He longs to come in. None of us are too dirty for him to clean. Band, you can start making your way up. My question for you today as we close and think about this in our lives is, will you open the gates to the King of Glory? Will you allow him to come in? I know that for some, you've never, you've never made that decision. You've never allowed him to come in. We would love nothing more before you leave to have a conversation about that, to pray with you about that. You're not too dirty. Your hands can't get too unclean. Your heart can't be too impure. This is the good news about Christ. He was our substitute. It wasn't that he was our substitute for some. He was a substitute for all. I think for some of us too, we've heard this message. We've opened the gates of our heart to the Father. But maybe recently, maybe We've just been blind to it. We've actually sectioned him off in only certain rooms. We've, we, we've tried to divide him and, and just not give him full access to all things in our life. Back to our first question, we've, we've tried to hold on to autonomy, hold on to control. Today's an invitation to lift up the gates of your heart. Let the king of glory come in. Let's pray. Father... I ask that you, your spirit would just run wild in this room, that where you have convicted us, where you have spoken clearly from from your word, may that move our feet. Would we be a people that respond when we hear from you clearly, Lord? I thank you. <laughs> I thank you that you send us a helper through all this. That your spirit dwells with us. May your spirit come alive in us this morning in a fresh new way. God, I pray for the person who, it would take a lot of courage to admit they have never really opened their heart to you. That they have never lifted the gates so that you could come in. I pray that you would embolden them to seek the counsel of a friend, to go and get prayer with someone on our prayer team. I pray for those, God, who have been walking with you for some time now that you would, you would cause us to not be the same just after hearing your word clearly. Not by anything that I said, but just what it says in Psalm 24, knowing that you're the, you're the owner of all things. You're the creator of all things. And as we sing, we think about what an awesome God you are, that there is none like you, don't let us stay the same. We thank you that you rule in such a compassionate loving way set us in our place God show us what's reality and what's true and I pray that our unity as a church be founded on your gospel on your good news about what you've done for us and that we would fully know our identity as your children as stewards of all you've given us In your name we pray amen Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King.